All right, well, we are continuing in the Gospel of Luke, so turn to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to pick up at verse 36, and we'll take it down to the, uh, to the end of this chapter. Um, so that will complete um, a section that some would call the Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain. If you weren't here last week, you can go and listen to the beginning of the study. I'm sure it's online by now. And kind of uh, see the distinction. But the one thing that you'll see is that in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about how he was in the mountain. And here it talks about how he was in a level place. So it seems geographically that's different. The, the way in which he teaches the Beatitudes here um, definitely seems to be different in that it's having more of a, uh, a, a focus upon uh, the physical. Whereas in Matthew, it certainly has a focus upon the spiritual but as you move out of that, and we saw this last week, it really does begin to, this is the same sermon that he preached, just different location. Um, so no problem there whatsoever. But we're going to see uh, the Lord continue to describe the way in which his kingdom uh, followers should, should be. So we pick up at verse 36, therefore, so coming out of all these verses that talked about, you know, loving our enemies and, um, you know, Love those who don't treat you well, because anybody can love those who treat them well. He says, therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Now, we rejoice in the mercy of God when it hits us, right? I mean, when we experience the mercy of God, I mean, that, this is time to write a song. It's time to write a poem. It's time to, you know, just, uh, just thank the Lord and, and be so excited, but when other people are supposed to be receiving mercy from God through us, we don't like to write as many songs about that, do we? Because it doesn't feel as good. I mean, now listen, if the Spirit of God is working and moving, which I am confident He has uh, that place in your life, you will find that. But there's going to be this resistance of our flesh to, to reject that and say, wait, they, they deserve something, though. Well, that's the whole point. It wouldn't be mercy if they didn't deserve something. You know, it would be, you know, a reward. It would be well done. Mercy is what you're showing to somebody who has failed. <clears throat> and that may be somebody that's failed directly um, with you. And we're going to talk about then showing forgiveness. But it might be just showing mercy to somebody that's failed in general. And there is a, a, a real spirit of love and kindness and generosity and forgiveness that we're going to see in this section of Scripture. It is sad that so often the, 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 the church can be known for being harsh and being mean. It's like, well, I'm mean for Jesus. No, you're not. You're mean because you're grumpy. You're mean because you don't understand the spirit of the Lord. You're not mean for Jesus. He's never asked us to be mean. You don't have a Bible verse for that one. But we do have a Bible verse for showing mercy. And being kind and being generous and forgiving. So the Father is merciful to us. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. But just remember the Lord delights in showing mercy. And his mercy is as high as the heavens. How high are the heavens? Well, we don't know. And you're like, well, I think I might have used it up today. Don't worry. Tomorrow they're new every morning. So there's an infinite amount of mercy that is refreshed Every single morning, and the Lord's glad to do it. That is our God. So we are to be merciful people. Verse 36, verses 37 and 38 
Um, we are to be generous people. It says, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then the fourth imperative is give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom or onto your lap. For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So we are to be generous people with our hearts, with our minds, and with our resources. So there are four commands that Jesus gives. There are four imperatives in these verses. Two of them are negative. Two of them are positive. But all of them are written in the present tense, which means this is a habitual action we are to be involved in. So it's not just a once-off. It's a Jesus is laying out the prescription. He's laying out the description. He says, you should be continually um, walking in these attitudes, these habits. So the first one again, judge not so you won't be judged. Condemn not so you won't be condemned. Forgive so you'll be forgiven. Give and you'll be given to you. And so each of these has two parts, right? You have the part that we are to do um, and then there's another response that comes. Um, who's the response from? Well, um, when we read, judge not so you won't be judged, I mean, we could say this is a judgment that maybe would come from others. And that's true, because if you're, if you're a person that's going around judging everybody, and you're running over the top of them, and you're pointing out everything, you very likely might find that there's a bunch of people who want to nitpick your life as well. Um, and if you condemn, be condemned, and so forth. But um, something I learned today, um, love to learn, get to study and learn things, um, is an, an, this author, um, James Edwards, and I've used, by the way, James Edwards as a commentary. I've, I've just found it fabulous. I'm, I'm using a bunch of them, but I've just found his to be particularly good here in the Gospel of Luke, um, and it's from the Pillar New Testament. But anyways, he says... In this, he says, the passive response, you will not be judged, is a Semitic way of avoiding pronouncing the name of God. It means do not judge, and God will not judge you. So the, the literary style is that there's only one person we're talking about here, and it's God. Now, it's not that it couldn't be in other situations. There might be application, in other words, but... Most of them all agree that this is a judgment that you won't have from the Lord. So you're going around judging, you're going to stand before the Lord one day. And this is kind of what James says when he talks about how we should behave with each other. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. So you better walk it out right because you're going to meet with him real soon. And you don't want to be judged in the same way you're Judging, You don't want to be condemned in the same negative way. You don't want to be not showing forgiveness. You want to have things be given to you. So it kind of just leads us into uh, the, these four imperatives. The first one, judge not. Um, this seems to be uh, the world's favorite verse to quote that doesn't even believe in the Bible. Now here's the thing. There is a, a positive judgment and a negative judgment, and it's the same Greek word. Okay, so there's a, there's a negative judgment that we're being told not to do, but there's a positive judgment that we should engage in. 
So depending on the context is going to be depending on whether you use this negatively or positively. The context here is it's easy. The very next um, uh, you know, command is, you know, condemn not so you won't be condemned. So, I mean, really, it's just a synonym of the same idea. It's just repeating that same thought. So this is a judgment that's going to have a condemnation with it. It's not a, uh, a judgment that's trying to discern whether or not somebody is making the right decisions in life and helping them out. Or no, it's, It has nothing to do with help. It is a critical mean spirit that is being talked about. And it says, this shouldn't be found in your life. Um, so it's not referring to we should never make a, a decision about uh, somebody's behavior, whether it's good or bad or beneficial or helpful. Um, as one guy writes, he says, this does not imply that flabby indifference to moral condition of others um, is the standard. It, no, we have standards. We have the word of God. So it's not that we just, oh, who cares how people live? No, we totally care how people live. But we should not have this critical mean spirit where we are judging people, fault finding, just kind of watching over them. And, and, and really, if we just think of the context of the Gospel of Luke, I mean, what has Jesus dealt with? He has Pharisees that are popping out of the grain field, right? On the Sabbath and saying, aha, you're eating grain on the Sabbath. It's like, where did you come from? And why are you hiding in the bushes? I mean, where are you going? Or they're, they're, they're setting up, you know, this man with a withered hand at, at the synagogue. And, aha, you healed on the Sabbath. But, of course, the Lord is able to deal with these guys. He knows the word better than they do, and he kind of brings us to their attention. He says, have you ever read the Bible? Do you not understand what David did? Oh, what does the law say? Is it, should I do good or evil on the Sabbath? And he shuts them down every time. But that, that's the attitude of the leaders of the country. They're men that had a critical spirit, and they were judging. They were always finding fault. Yeah, we move on in verse 37. Don't condemn. Again, it's just expanding. It's elucidating the idea of judge not. There's really not much difference here. One author goes on to say that it connotes a hard-heartedness, a lack of compassion. So it's the same idea. We should not be those types of people. So those are the two negative commands. Don't do this. Now here are the two positive ones. At the end of verse 37, we are told to forgive. We are commanded to be merciful, we are commanded to love, and we are commanded to forgive. Um, the word forgive is apoluo. Apo, not apple. Apoluo. And it's, it's, it's made from two different Greek words. Uh, one is a preposition from, and the other is a, a verb that means to loose. To loose from. That's what the word means, to lose from. And so we, the definition for this word is to set free, to acquit, to pardon. When we forgive people, we are loosing them from an obligation and a payment they owe us for the wrong they've done to us. Set them free. It's not simply, oh, I forgive you, and you're walking away gnashing your teeth. Because they will know that. Well, how will they know that? If no, for no other reason, 
because the Spirit of God will let them know it's not right. The Holy Spirit does not mind tattletaling on you or me. And, he can, and you know that. You know when you've sat down and you've talked to somebody. And you know whether you've been set free or whether it's just been a smokescreen. Okay, we're fine. We're good. We're good. We don't need to talk about this. Okay, I've got to go. I was like, oh, yeah, we're not okay. I still have a debt. I had, there's a ledger with my name in, in it in their mind. And there is a negative in it. But we are to loose people from whatever they would owe us. And, you know, a lot of times we're the ones that we're setting the standard. You know, you owe me two weeks of bad attitude, right? I'm going to give you a bad attitude for two weeks because you earned that. Oh, you don't like the way it is around here? Well, you shouldn't have done what you did. Yeah, but I've asked for forgiveness. And I've forgiven you. However, there's consequences. Mm. How would you like it if the Lord dealt with us that way? It's to loose. It's to set free. When somebody is acquitted, it's a legal term, okay? And when somebody is acquitted, they walk out of that courtroom and they're free. The judge doesn't follow them home. You've been acquitted, but I'm watching you. Matter of fact, I'm sleeping in your living room. So just watch out. Have they really been acquitted? But the, the idea here is that we are setting people free. We are releasing them from the debt they have. So let's just run that idea that I just kind of explained to you. Let's run that idea through Jesus. Because here's the great thing about our theology. You can almost take any principle and run it through the character and the nature of Jesus to see if it's accurate. It's not the only way. It may not work in every situation. But as we talk about this issue, it totally works. Does Jesus set us free? I think he even said something about that. Whom the what? Son sets free is You're really free. I set you free and it's for real. I mean, I'm, I'm letting you go. You're off the hook. So again, just to remind you that these commands, they are, they are present imperatives, which means... You are continually doing this. Any other teaching come to mind about this repeated process of even forgiveness? How about when he's talking with Jesus? Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven? As he looks around at all the other apostles, I'm about to get a gold star. Seven times? Number of perfection. Lord, I don't know if you know that or not. He's like, uh, no, not seven times, Peter. Seventy times seven what's that do it all the time you're continually in this attitude of forgiving people pardoning them releasing them setting them free and you've got to you know sometimes we have to convince people of that i mean you know this in your own walk with the lord he has forgiven you and i'm not asking for a show of hands so you don't have to do it but how many of us how many of you still walk around with this sense of guilt and shame for the things you've already repented of, which Jesus has already suffered and died on the cross for and is completely wiped away? And yet we still walk around and the guilt and the shame of it. And, you know, it's one thing just to have a pang of kind of a memory. It's like, oh, it zings you. It's like, oh, that was bad. And then it's another thing when you kind of slip down into 
the guilt and the condemnation of it. And the Lord has to continually remind us that we're forgiven. And he's good at it. Are we? Are we good at forgiving people? Are we good at reminding people? Are we good at kind of holding up the chain that held them and say, look, the chain's off. There's nothing on you. We are fine. You've been set free. Is there a person that you are more like a debt collector to than one who is liberated? What would they say? What would they say? I know they kind of hold, they're still holding me down. There's still an attitude. They're still there. Well, you know what? Then you need to become a liberator tonight. Maybe you need to send an email, write a text, or even do something like go over to their house and talk to them. Say, so, you know what? I think you probably know this that, you know, I said I forgive you and I've tried to go on, but I never really have. But I want you to know you're free. You don't owe me anything. You don't have to walk in some kind of, you know, put on humility for me or, you know, just kind of, just you are free. Feel free to rejoice. Feel free to grow in your walk with the Lord. And this is the thing is that sometimes it's like a person who has sinned and it's like they're growing in their walk with the Lord and the, the other person is like, I don't know if I really agree with this growth that's going on in your life. I know what you're really like. Oh, yeah, you're right. And just kind of that, just pulling them back in, right? You're pulling them down. Liberate them and let them go free. The fourth commandment is that we are to be generous. Let's read that verse again, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So we are to be a, a generous people with, uh, in the way we treat them and in our, in our uh, forgiving of people and showing them mercy and not condemning them, not judging them, but also in the way in which we give to people. I mean, and, and there is, in the verses that preceded this, I talked about, you know, lending without any expectation of something coming in return. So I really do think it's, we're probably talking about both those relational things as well as those physical things that we should be generous with. We should be marked as a people that are generous. Is that a description that's used of you? In your forgiveness, in your mercy, in your giving. But the picture here is somebody who has sat down and they're holding a container. And, it, you know, let's say it's just being filled up with grain. And it's being poured in. And as it goes in, it goes to the top. But then it just keeps on coming over and it's just spilling over onto your lap. You're just like being just totally over, overflowed with um, whatever the product was, grain in this illustration that I'm using. And he says, that's, that's what I'm going to do to you. That's, again, it's the Lord that's being generous. It's the Lord that's going to forgive. It's the Lord who's not going to condemn. It's the Lord that's not going to judge. He's the one that's in focus here. And he's saying, give. Give away. Continually be in this process of giving. Well, I gave to uh, some people one time. I can't remember when it was or even who they, what it was for or how much I gave. But I gave once. No. It's this continual spirit of generosity. Um, Rebecca and myself both, um, 
you know, we spent time at Calvary Costa Mesa when Pastor Chuck was pastoring there. And, um, you know, that's where we met. That's where we dated. That's where we got engaged. That's where we got married. That's where we got sent off into ministry. It's where I got ordained. I mean, so much stuff happened there. But there's a couple of things that Pastor Chuck has said that have always stuck with me. And one of the things is on this point of generosity. And he says, the church should be known for being generous, not for trying to get people's money. And he says, too often, the church is known for trying to get people's money rather than being generous. And that, that, that certainly applies to me and the staff and to the elders and the ministry leaders, but it also applies to you, to all of us, because we all are the church. Let's be generous there's a spiritual law that teaches us that we're going to reap what we've sown. We're seeing this in our relationships with one another. But if our actions are like planting seed in a field that will one day sprout, grow, and bring a harvest, what is that harvest going to look like for you if your generosity is measured by the things you've given away, the seeds that you've planted? You know, you could have, you could have a, you know, a barn full of seed that you hold on to because if I put it out there, we might not get rain. If we put it out there, we might have you know, some kind of pest you know, uh, that will destroy it. If we put it out there, you know, somebody might destroy my crops. And so you save all the grain. So you just put a little bit out. Well, what, what kind of harvest are you going to have? You're going to have a little tiny harvest. But if you, if you sow generously... You're going to reap generously. But if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. Solomon put it like this, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1. Give generously, for your gifts will return to you later. So again, we have the Lord in view here. I think this is true even in our relationships with one another. If people know us to be generous, they're probably going to be generous back. Not always, but the Lord always is. The, the, this is the way the Lord would say it, is that, that he is a debtor to no man. So if you are giving and he has promised to give back abundantly to you and to me, then we should expect that the Lord is going to be true because he doesn't have debts. And so this should change the way in which we think about being generous with people, both relationally but also physically. It is this principle that that Paul picks up when he writes to the Corinthians. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We may have the verses up there. Yeah, it looks like we have them. Okay, so actually it's on the screen, but you might want to turn over there too. So 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 10. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or of, I gotta do this, I gotta give. Those people don't know what to do with the money around the church. If I stop giving, it's all gonna dry up. No, don't give like that. Don't give grudgingly. The happiest, you know, moment you deal with your money should be when you are giving it to the Lord. So don't do it grudgingly. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. You might want to circle that word grace. Giving 
financial, being generous and giving financially is a grace. It's a grace. And so you can kind of get an idea where this flows from. He's able to... um, is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Not for every you know, fleshly thing you want to do, but for every good work you're going to have what you need. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So we are to be generous people. And um, I just, you're like, wow, I wonder what's going on financially. Wow. I mean, listen, you guys have been generous. We have been able to give. We've tried to be generous as uh, as a church and as a staff and as we have gone through, and some of you recall, as we found out there were financial needs with some churches in the midst of their building uh, projects, we, tr- we gave to them. Um, we just felt like it was the right thing to do. And, you know, the Lord was, man, it's just pressed down running over for Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. He's been so good. He's been so good to us. And um, so I'm not trying to, I'm not aiming at anything. I'm just teaching the next verse in our chapter. But we are to be generous. And um, I know that for me, I know I can be more generous. And um, so what holds Troy back from being more generous? <laughs> Probably not understanding this principle as well as I should. So allow it to sink into your heart. Allow it to be there. Um, and you can't outgive the Lord. Now, if your response to all this is, so let me get this straight. If I give a whole bunch, then I'm going to get a lot back more. I mean, I mean that's what I mean, like better than the stock market kind of a thing. You got the wrong heart here. And and I and I want to apologize if you have been motivated to give by other people because this is going to really take care of you financially. And, and it's just like, you know, it's like, well, hey, in the stock market, I don't know if you're lucky, you can average, you know, 10 to 12%. But if you give to the Lord, I mean, you're going to get so much more. And it, it's just treated crassly as a way to get more money. It's not the point. It's the point is basically, don't worry about giving. I'm going to take care of you. And really the thing is, is when are we going to get the more? When is it going to run over? Because probably when the next good work comes up. Right? And so uh, just, just be careful of that. I never want to motivate you, nor do I want to be motivated by myself to give so I can get. The principle is there to just give us faith and to just kind of set us free. It's like, don't worry about it. The Lord's going to take care of you. Well, as we move on from here in verses 39 through 45, we get some illustrations. And uh, these are loosely connected to the idea of having legitimate and illegitimate faith and practice. So that all four of these um, illustrations that we're about to go through, they kind of deal with the real faith versus, you know, the not so real faith. So we begin with verses 39 through 40 that we should lead people faithfully. He spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? 
Will they not both fall into a ditch? The ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So if we're going to lead people, we have to have our lives together to begin with. So leaders, he's talking you know, to a crowd that is gathered, but he's just like, look at the leaders. I mean, no doubt their minds would have gone to the leaders that were around them. And they were, they were, and Jesus later calls them blind guides. You know, he is, I think he's thinking of them. Trying to tell people how to walk with the Lord and live with the Lord. And he's like, these people, they don't know where they're going. And they're falling in ditches and they're leading people into ditches with them. You know, <laughs> This idea of falling in ditches, they say historically at this time, it's rather apropos because they were always digging for water and not always finding water. So there was always, you know, attempts at digging. Um, they didn't fill in the holes, okay? There was no OSHA to make sure you filled in the hole. You know, they just left it there. And there were cisterns that couldn't hold water. And so there you have all these holes all over the place. So you have the blind leading the blind and they're falling into you know, these ditches to these, you know, attempts to find water, these holes that were dug. Matthew 23, Jesus says, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are blind guides. But, you know, for us, we need to make certain that we are looking clearly at Jesus and we are following him. It's like, well, I don't want to be a blind guide. Then follow Jesus. He is not a blind guide. He has perfect vision and knows exactly where to go. He knows the exact pace to keep. He knows when to turn left. He knows when to turn right. And he will never let you or me or the church down. So let's follow him. If we follow him, then we don't have to worry about being blind guides, do we? We don't have to worry about leading somebody else in the ditch. I, I, can, I speak so boldly and confidently when I stand up in front of you because I... I am following Jesus, and I know what he said. I'm not trying to figure these things out. I'm not trying to come up with a new principle for life today. No, I'm not doing that. It's like, Lord, what does your word say? And I can speak boldly, and I can speak confidently, and you can to your children as well. Here's what the word of God says. Let's go. Well, how do you know that's right? Listen, I'm not a blind guide. I'm following Jesus. I know exactly where he's going. And I'm, we're going to follow him. And we're not going to end up in a ditch. You, you can say that confidently. Not because you've got it all together, but simply because you're smart enough to follow Jesus. And so you're not going to end up in that place. So you can faithfully lead your family. You can faithfully lead those, Sunday, those children in the Sunday school. You can faithfully lead in that home fellowship or just your friends and those around you, because you're following the Lord. And um, you're going to stay out of the ditch. Now he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Well, you know, we're never going to be above the Lord, but we certainly can be trained by him. He's an excellent teacher, isn't he? Well, if he's an excellent teacher, then you can have confidence that you are doing the right thing. And that's why you can speak boldly. So it's not a pat on, on, on the back for you or for me or for us. We're just like, no, we're just following him. 
Have you ever followed somebody? I mean, you know, we have GPS on our phones now, so it's not that big of a deal. But do you remember in the days when you had to follow somebody for real? It's like, you have to follow them, and if, you know, I mean, you don't ever pull over now if somebody's following you and they, you get stuck at the light. It's like, no, they know where they're going. If they don't, they can call me. But, you know, there's a time when you're just like, you have to, you got to follow them. Yeah, this is what we are doing. We just got to follow the Lord. We keep on moving on through this, this passage, verses 41 through 42. We get another illustration. It's one that is quite familiar to us. It says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? This is a, a beam that would hold up a roof. That's the plank we're talking about here. So not even a two-by-four, all right? We're talking about a massive beam that is a, you know, a key to the whole structure of the, of the building. Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye. Hypocrite, actor, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus uses this comical picture of somebody that's got a beam sticking out of their eye, going about, knocking everything over, trying to get to deal with somebody who has some, you know, a little dust that's gotten into their eye. I mean, it's, obviously it's not real, it's hyperbole, it's exaggeration to teach this literal truth that when you have no intention with dealing with the things that are troubling you, don't go and try and deal with something that's troubling somebody else. It's hypocritical. What is a hypocrite? Somebody who misses the mark? No, that's a sinner. And we all are sinners. You can sin and not be a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who's acting like they've got it all together, when in reality they don't. There's a difference between the two. You know, sometimes they're, you know, they're such a hypocrite. Okay, maybe they are. Maybe she is. But think a little longer. It's not just did they sin, but in their sin, how are they behaving now? Are they still trying to act like they've got it all together and there's no sin? Then, yeah, that's hypocrisy. If it's somebody who sinned, they're called out on it and they repent, that's not a hypocrite. That's a sinner. And we're all part of that, that group. We all have admittance to that club. Right? But hopefully we're not hypocrites. And Jesus is talking about a hypocrite. Somebody who's unwilling to deal with the stuff in their life while trying to deal with the issues in somebody else's life. So, you didn't talk so nicely to your wife, and your friend saw that. So, he decides that he wants to correct you on your marriage. Meanwhile, he's living in adultery and living with a woman. Okay, I don't think I want your instruction. That, that's the idea here. It's like, I'm unwilling to repent of my sin, but I see that you didn't talk so nicely to your wife. No, no, no. Deal with your own issue first. And then you can go... And do this. And do notice there in verse, towards the end of verse 42, it says, and then you will see clearly. 
And so this, this is often misinterpreted, this passage, to mean that we should never try to help anybody or correct anybody if there's something in their life because all of us have our own issues. That's not what this is saying. It's talking to a hypocrite that's unwilling to address the issues in their life and in their heart that wants to go and correct other people, kind of in that critical, fault-finding spirit. But to the person who is walking uprightly, you should go. You should then go and see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You see, you see, the, you see the difference here? So it's, this is not forbidding us from dealing with people who are struggling with something, that have an issue. It's just saying, don't do it when you're full of hypocrisy. Again, Jesus has got a crowd the leaders in mind. These are the guys that would go and strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, right? They would worry about the, the, the smallest details of the law. They would count, they would open their spices. They'd get out and they'd start counting all of their little seeds, you know? They'd go through their coriander seeds. Okay, maybe we've got to give 100 here. I've got 200, 550. Okay, I need to find 55 seeds here. They start going through and they're counting out all those little things. They got the 55. Okay, we got to give this to the Lord. Meanwhile, they're not taking care of their parents <laughs> who need food because they've dedicated their money to the temple today. Next week, it'll be given back to them because they said hocus pocus when they gave it. And so it makes it all, you know, allowed. And they were playing all these games. And they were, you know, they could, you know, go up to somebody and say, did you tithe of your coriander seeds? Uh, no, I didn't do that. Okay, well, you, you know, you're going to bring judgment upon this nation. You're God. And they would just lay into them. Meanwhile, they got their family living at their house, right? And they're feeding mom and dad, taking care of them, but they forgot to count out the coriander seed. That is the kind of situation that... Jesus is referring to. So deal with your own issues first. That's the point here. Verse 43 and 44. Um, we're to be known by our fruit. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. You're going to get grapes and you're going to get figs from Healthy vines and from healthy trees. All right, so we are to be known by our fruit, which raises the question how can you tell if there's good fruit or bad fruit if you're not judging the fruit? You know, you maybe have heard this said, you know, we're not to judge, but we are to be fruit inspectors. And we are to look at the fruit, we are to know. What's going on in somebody else's life? We are to, to, to know who they are. But um, the way you're going to know them is by the fruit that comes from their life. What do people see when they come up close to you and they begin to eat of the fruit of your life? Is it sweet or is it bitter? Is it refreshing or is it repulsive? What, what, what is it like to spend time with you? When you're not at church. 
He's like, well, I, you know, if you come over, I probably could be really good. No, 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 we want to talk to your family, <laughs> right? Talk to my family. Th- that's where the, the fruit's going to come out. What's happening there? What's the fruit that's being seen? Well, what do you mean fruit? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me over to Galatians. So go towards the end of the book, right? End of the Bible. So go to Galatians. You were just in Corinthians a moment ago. Just go a little bit past that. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Well, actually, you know what? Let's get a picture of both. Uh, this passage has, lists them both. So let's look at good fruit and bad fruit. So let's, let's back up to verse 19. Now the works of the flesh bad fruit, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Both of those words, uncleanness and lewdness, are dealing with sexual lust. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's bad fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So what is the fruit that people feed upon because they're eating something when they're around you and in this metaphorical sense they're eating something they're feeding on something what are they biting into the works of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit is it pleasant and do they want to come back or is it unpleasant well all of us can probably say Sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. I could do better in this area, not so good in that area. This one's pretty good. Well, how do we bear fruit? Well, we walk in this spirit, but turn with me to John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about this bearing of fruit. In John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. And here it is. Abide in me. Remain in me. And I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You will be fruitless without me. And so it's in this constant communion. It's in this abiding relationship with Jesus. Um, And he gives the illustration of a a branch that's connected to a vine. A a limb that's, you know, connected to the trunk of the tree. I mean, if... If it's not connected, if it's laying beside the, the tree or by the vine, it's not going to bear fruit. And we can't bear fruit 
If we're not remaining connected to Jesus. Well, how do we connect, remain connected to Jesus? Well, we obey him. This is one of the things this chapter goes on to talk about. We walk in obedience. But we also commune with him. You know, we're reading the word of God. We're praying. We're, we're, we're taking time to meditate upon the Lord and his word and his ways and his work in our life. And as we do this, there's this good stuff of Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that fruit of the Spirit is going to come out of our life. If you're looking at your life today, it's like, man, I just can't do this stuff. You're right, you can't. And Jesus said so. Apart from me, you can't bear good fruit. But if you'll get connected to Jesus and you will remain connected, the nourishment's going to flow to you spiritually and you will begin to produce fruit of kindness and love and joy and self-control and these will be the characteristics of your life so this is how we bear the fruit that Jesus said we should be known by verse 45 it says a good man out of the abundance excuse me out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good forth good and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks I wonder what's in their heart listen to them talk listen to them talk listen to them pray and, and you'll find out what's in there is this a good person or is this a bad person well what's coming out You'll find out what's in the heart. The mouth reveals what is in the heart. It's the good treasure, the good stuff, remaining in the Lord and worshiping him. It's going to come out when you're, when you're around other people. And our speech, I mean, uh, harsh, destructive words, words that are ungodly, um, promoting ungodly ideas, it reveals that the heart is not in a good place. If you're treasuring the kingdom of God, you will be constantly returning your speech to the treasure of your heart. What is the treasure in your heart? What is it that you highly esteem? What is it that you think about all the day long? Because that's the treasure. Now, in fairness, when you have the free moment, because you might be working, you might be you know, engaged in a and some kind of test, you know, study, fine. When, when the mind is free, where does it go? What is it that you ponder? What is it that you, you're constantly thinking over? That's what your treasure is. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And that out of your heart is going to speak. And the Lord will know, we all will know. And really... The most important that's gonna, person that's going to get informed about what's in your heart is you and me. I mean, we're the ones that really need to know. God already knows. We don't necessarily know until we know, right, with each other. But when you hear something come out of your mouth, you know what? That's, that's for you. That's for me to be able to, to deal with that. Well, we close this chapter here in verses 46 through 49. And we see that servants of the Lord obey their Lord. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, 
I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So the point that he's wanting to make is, if you're... If I'm yours, if I'm your Lord, you're going to obey me. And he gave the illustration of two types of homes, or two types of builders, I should say. One that puts in the hard work and builds it correctly, obeys the Lord. And then there's those who just are kind of trying to find the easy way. And so Jesus said the narrow path and following him, few would find it because people don't want to be on the narrow path. They don't, want to, they don't want to restrict their, you know, their life to the words of Jesus. But you know, to those that have made the decision to follow Jesus, it's like, give me more, Lord. <laughs> uh, you know, if your heart is feeling kind of dull towards the commands of the Lord, read Psalm. Anybody want to know? What do you think I'm thinking of? Psalm what? 119. Longest chapter in the Bible. Go read Psalm 119, and before you do that, just say, Lord, revive my heart to obey you and to know your word. Because you're going to find the psalmist saying things like, it is good that I've been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. To the person who's on the narrow path and sees the beauty of digging deep and building their life upon it, even when hard things come, they rejoice because it's in the hard times that sometimes we have the most clarity of thought about how to do things. What is really important right now? And the afflictions. And in afflictions, Lord, you've taught me. And if you're going to teach me through a trial, then Lord, I love the trials because I want to know your word. I value your statutes. I esteem them more than my, my daily provision of food. I want that. So the follower of the Lord, yes, they're on the narrow path, and yes, they're going to do the hard work of hearing the commands and following the Lord, not for salvation, but because we want to obey our Lord. It's, it's just you can't help it. If you're a Christian, you can't help but to obey Jesus. Read 1 John. Read 1 John. That's not to say we can't have seasons of disobedience. Again, we're all in the sinner's club, remember? You know, we all have our moments. But you can't live like that. If you're like, wow, you know, I don't know about that. I mean, I never obeyed Jesus, and I feel like things are just fine. No, they're not. They're not fine. Because the earmark, the stamp of a follower of Jesus Christ, is the one who's saying, yes, Lord, not no, Lord. Yes, Lord. No, Lord is an oxymoron. Those two don't go together. Slaves don't say, no, master. They say, yes, master. Jesus is our master. And we say yes to him. We follow him. I mean, the conversation is over. You think you're going one way, and so he's like, yeah, but the word of God says this. And remember what the Lord taught here. And as you are, you're action that you're engaged in or a potential you know course that you're on 
when confronted with the clear teaching of the Word of God, that's a hallelujah moment. It's like, well, thank you. I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. Because you want to follow the Lord. And, you know, when we don't, again, we, the Lord so quickly convicts us. And again, if you say, well, I'm never chastened, and I'm never convicted by disobeying Jesus. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If the Holy Spirit is not convicting you, that, that is a moment to get terrified and get before the Lord. People come and say, I don't know if I'm saved. Okay, well, why is it you don't think I'm saved? I don't know, I've been sinning lately. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. But when I talk to somebody, it's like, hey, that action in your life is not right. Well, you know, you, who are you to judge me? Okay. Are you saved? You don't think I'm saved? Well, I'm wondering if you're saved. Yeah. I'm, I have some questions because you feel like it's okay to be living in sin right now. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. So you're coming up with all kinds of excuses to not follow Jesus. I know nobody's perfect. And I'll put my name at the top of the list. But man, I'm convicted. And I want to do the right thing. All evidence is of those that we're following the Lord. So servants will obey their master, the Lord. As you consider your profession of faith and your lifestyle, is it in harmony with the Lord? Or is, it, is there dissonance? between your life and what the Lord wants. It's just like, in, you know, when somebody plays an off note. Of course, it never happens here at this church, but some churches, they may play an off note. But, you know, or you, you, maybe you play something and you play an off note. Have you, and you hear, it's like, oh, that, that was bad. You know, that's the dissonance. But what is your, what's the melody like in your life? It's a good question for all of us to be asking, even if it's for a season in our life. We close with this, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It's the same section here. Um, and these words are placed between Jesus' teaching on knowing people based upon the fruit of their life and uh, building wisely. And in Matthew, these verses come between that section that we just read in Luke. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? It's not a few people. How many people did he say there in verse 22? Many. Many are going to come who have been in ministry, casting out demons, prophesying, speaking forth the word of the Lord, performing miracles, and they're going to say, what are you talking about? We've done all kinds of stuff for you. It's like, listen, you didn't obey me. Who are you kidding? You're not mine. Depart from me. So obedience does not save us, but saved people are obedient. You're like, wow, but it seems so hard right now. Are you abiding in Jesus? Come back. Come back. 
and, and, and just, just begin to spend time with the Lord. Well, how am I going to change all these bad behaviors? If you've repented of them in prayer, just start spending time with Jesus. I've got to come up with ten ways to not sin. No, you don't. You need to come up with one way to not sin, and that is to abide in Jesus. I've got all this darkness in my life. I've got to get it out. Well, how do you get darkness out of your living room? You turn on the light. How are you going to get darkness out of your heart? You're going to turn on the light of the Lord. And it, it will expel it. It's, it's, it's the natural process physically, and it's a supernatural process spiritually. I believe we can get so caught up on trying to stop sinning that we never do the important thing that really helps, and that is to turn on the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that tonight the light has been turned on. That, Lord, we've allowed you to search our hearts as followers of you. We've allowed you to, to come into the corners and the recesses of our, our behavior and our thoughts and our speech. And Lord, if there are things that are not right, then help us to bow before you. To kneel and say, Lord, it's good that I've been afflicted. It's good that you've corrected me, Lord. This is your word. It is true, and I will follow it. Lord, give us that spirit. Give us that heart. And Lord, we confess openly to you. Our flesh can be so strong, and we, we don't abide in you. Yeah, Lord, you are absolutely right. We don't produce much that is good. But we know that you are glorified that we bear much fruit. So Lord, would you just, would you cleanse us afresh?